Hello and welcome back to NEMT Radio. We're already up to episode five. Can you believe that? Where has that time gone? I'm your host, Rob Lawrence. I'm delighted to be here. And this week, I am excited to welcome NEMT's very own medical director, Dr. Doug Cooper. Sir, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Rob. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So just to help uh, folk along, uh, would you mind uh, doing a self-bio and introduction? I always ask my guests to uh, tell them about themselves. First question. Happy to do that. So I have been in EMS over 40 years. I'm one of those that started at the age of 16 and went to the volunteer ambulance service and started uh, right off the bat. But I continue to be a field provider that's active. Right now, I am, as you said, the national uh, medical director for NAEMT. And I also serve in central Pennsylvania as the EMS medical director for Geisinger EMS and the co-director of Geisinger's Mobile Integrated Healthcare uh, Program. Thank you. So just to kind of set us up, in early 2022, 14 international EMS patient safety, quality and fire associations released a joint position statement encouraging EMS systems to reduce incidents of lights and siren vehicle operations. This represents a significant alignment by associations on the risks and benefits of lights and sirens EMS vehicle response. And so we're all behind this initiative. And it's something that we realize that uh, whilst we are speeding to the uh, to the patient, of course, we put a lot of other people at risk in doing so. And obviously, you've been championing this uh, process and this research for a long time. So why don't we get back to basics and, and talk about uh, the studies that you've been up to and obviously the reasons and the rationale for doing that. Absolutely. So it, you're correct. That multi-organizational uh, position statement that came out uh, almost a year ago uh, today, a year ago this month, actually, um, that, that paper, I think, has brought us to a, a pinnacle here. You know, I have been doing EMS research related to lights and siren use for 30 years now. And my first uh, publication was 30 years ago related to reducing lights and siren use. And although I've been talking about it in different forums for about 30 years, I think something is different right now. This uh, multi-organizational, 14 organizations coming together and doing a joint position statement really has been powerful. And I see changes happening that did not happen with some of the other little steps that occurred along the way, because there have been hundreds of publications that we can tie to appropriate use of lights and sirens. But, but that publication really has brought us to a point where people are paying attention and there's a lot of activity going on right now in the country. So in terms of that activity, um, we know and we spoke before we started recording that uh, NEMSQA have uh, some projects and initiatives going on. Uh, but how are you know those trailblazers actually trailblazing? What are they doing in order to, uh, to, to, to reduce the use? It sounds very easy. Just turn it off and carry on. But it's not as simple as that, is it? It is certainly not as simple as that. And so I will tell you that in there was a white paper in 2017 that I was very honored uh, to be asked by NHTSA, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, to do. That was published in 2017. Doesn't seem like it's more than five years ago now. But uh, in that paper, we looked at all of the previous research, and there's been some good things since then. But we looked at all the previous research, and we recommended a benchmark for agencies to respond to 
911 emergencies at less than 50% use of lights and siren. And we suggested that transport to the hospital, the benchmark should be less than 5%. We knew that those were actually very liberal benchmarks. Those are not as tight as it can be. My personal agency that I do EMS medical direction for has been responding to about 20% of their uh, 911 calls with lights and siren over the last 20 years. And in the most recent history, it's about 10%. And on the transport, there are many agencies that do less than 1% or even 0% transport lights and siren. So that 50% and 5% numbers are really a benchmark for places that just need to start making efforts and start changing their culture. If we were to create a checklist then for an agency that uh, has just been, you know, red lights and sirening, sirening their way through their professional sort of life, where does one start? What do you have to do? Sure. What's the recipe? You alluded to the NEMSQA project, and the NEMSQA project brought about 50 EMS agencies together from across the country and selected them because they wanted to actively track their current use and also then um, make improvements through a quality improvement type um, uh, processes at each, at each agency. And so I think that we are going to see out of that a number of publications, but we also hope that we will see a toolkit uh, that will help guide agencies through that checklist that you refer to. But I think even without the checklist, uh, you can look at the position statement from last year, and you can find things in there that are actionable within your agency. And that's probably the first place to start because it's a little bit different. You know, everybody needs to first measure their baseline so that you know what you're doing right now. And then you need to uh, identify the low-hanging fruit, the easy things. So you know, some examples are that many agencies are uh, very surprised when they actually look at their own PCR data and look at how often they get dispatched to a motor vehicle crash and how often that results in a patient being transported to the hospital and and more so how often it ends up uh, being a patient that has a potentially life-saving uh, intervention done by EMS or by the hospital. And you know when you look even at the motor vehicle crashes with unknown injuries, uh, people are surprised by their data. Uh, uh, I just heard about a system that looked at uh, their last couple months of data when they went to a motor vehicle crash with unknown injuries in um, central Pennsylvania, and they found that they had 62 of those in the last few months. And of the 62, five of them had patients, three were BLS, two were ALS, and the two ALS ones only got an IV and were taken to the local non-trauma center. So, you know, when you look at that and say, well, we went to 62 vehicle crashes with lights and siren and not a single one had any um, intervention or need to save that couple minutes to get there faster, it, it makes you start thinking about, well, what can you start making little changes in in your system that uh, may lead to bigger changes in your culture later? That's a great answer, and thank you for, for addressing that. And uh, so clearly the answer is information, metrics, data, understand, develop a baseline, and then work out how you can improve or how you can change. And, of course, uh, if our good friend Mike Tegman was here, he'd say we need to do a PDSA at that point, a small <laughs> test of change. We love you, Michael. And uh, to, uh, to, to make that change. Now, of course, that is great. 
But, of course, a lot of EMS systems and a lot of agencies that are listening to us are under response time requirements, are under local ordinances, are under political pressure, and in some cases are under patient pressure uh, because they believe that the lights and sirens, the sound, the speed is the thing that's going to save them. And so from from my perspective, of course, and I always tell people I'm the recovering chief these days, not the active chief, but even so, then one has to get ready to brief and educate and communicate with all of these people. And so, you know, from your system and from your experience, you know, where does one start with that one? Sure. So, I, you know, that's an interesting statement because I think, you know, you talked about the political pressures, which um, largely you spoke to, like there might be a an ordinance or or uh, maybe the, the um, system that is used to contract for the EMS agency for a certain community is requiring a certain response time. So that's one thing you alluded to. The other thing you alluded to is patient pressures. And I think, I think those are two very different things because the, the contract pressures are very real and they are not in every uh, agency in the United States. Uh, actually, you know, it's, it's sort of the medium-sized cities that uh, largely have those contract pressures because they're the places that put, their, put a bid out for their EMS coverage and do things like saying you should be there in eight minutes, 90% of the time. The uh, majority of the country, EMS does not operate under those. So, so those political pressures are a little less or, or much less in those places that don't have those. Uh, I think what, where do you start there? You meet with the elected officials and you change the um, parameters that are being used for those. You, uh, greatest example of that that I can give you, although there are a number of other ones. This happened in places like Kalamazoo and other places where they really looked at the contract and said, you know, it's crazy for our only quality measure to be how fast the ambulance gets there. Because how fast the ambulance gets there has nothing to do with the quality of the patient care that you get, uh, by and large. Uh, in Tulsa and Oklahoma City a number of years ago, they looked at just that and they changed it. They changed their expectations for their highest priority patients to 11 minutes and 59 seconds, I believe. And the lowest priorities went up to about 25 minutes. And so first of all, they changed the prioritization and they said, we're only going to get to the high priority calls in that short amount of time. The lower priority calls can have more time to get to them. That's a big change. And they found that they went from being a hundred percent lights and siren response to about thirty-three percent lights and siren response by doing that simple change of the expectations by the politics. That's great. It's it's what I call Doug the Ricky Bobby rule, right? So if you're not first, you're last, and uh, there is that, that in response time measurement, there is that ironic perverse incentive that if you arrive before the allotted time and the patient dies, that's a success. If you're a little bit late and the patient lives, that's a contractual failure. And we have to right. we have to get back, get away and, from that. And, you know, the interesting part about that is that those agencies are also not expected to, by that contract, time the important things, like what was the time from the 911 call to when you deliver the first shock. So they can get to the scene in the eight minutes or less, but it might take them five or 10 minutes 
to get into the patient and actually start their care and give a first defibrillatory shock. But those contracts ignore that part of the importance of, of time. The other thing that you mentioned, Rob, that I wanted to really hone in on was patient expectation. That was a, sort of a secondary part of your question. And that's very, very interesting because just about everywhere that has made big changes. I told you that my agency uh, 20 years ago was doing 20% of their responses with lights and siren, and now we have it down even lower than that to almost uh, around 10%. Um, we did that without any education to the public, without any uh, changing of those uh, sort of attention to those sorts of things. And guess what? Zero complaints for, from the public for not using lights and siren to get there. And most pe people in EMS realize that, you know, what you hear is the opposite. Many EMS clinicians are used to being dispatched and being told that they don't want lights and siren used near their house. So the public actually prefers the opposite. Um, we just think we know that they want us to and that we'll be overwhelmed with complaints. But I'm not saying we should ignore that. I'm saying that it's, number one, not as big an issue as we think it is with them in the public. And number two, uh, some places are doing really good education as they're prioritizing their calls and setting expectations to get to the really low priority calls, sometimes in an hour or 90 minutes. Uh, when you set those expectations, uh, scripting that through the dispatchers so that people know that their call is of lower priority and the ambulance will be out within um, a certain expected amount of time uh, helps. You know, that's, I, I view that as the Disney version, you know, when you're standing in line at Disney in the queue. Uh, I use the word queue for you there, Rob. Uh, when I noticed that. So uh, <laughs> for our friends in North America, Dr. Cooper's, of course, is talking about when you're in line. Let me translate right. back. When you're standing <laughs> in line answer. for the ride at Disney and they tell you it's going to be 45 minutes until you're on the ride and you're watching your clock and then you get on the ride uh, 20 minutes from then, you are thrilled and you think, boy, they're doing a great job because you've set your expectations and, and you've reversed it. So some of it is setting expectations, especially as we see more and more communities uh, because of our shortages of, of crews starting to stack calls and put calls into lower priorities where we don't expect somebody to be there in eight minutes. When we do that, you know, we should script something uh, from the dispatch center to the patient. We should be telling them if something changes, call back um, and that sort of thing. But in general, we don't, um, communities do not report huge numbers of complaints when they go with less uh, lights and sirens. So I'm going to mention uh, Matt Zavadsky. I'm contractually obliged to use his name at least once a day, and I'll use it on this call. Uh, as we both know, Matt's been a massive champion and proponent of, uh, of red lights and sirens reduction. Uh, I was talking to him uh, not so long back, and he mentioned, of course, they had that uh, the sort of massive weather storm uh, front ice issue, et cetera, coming through uh, the Metroplex area. And they put out a press release saying, listen, for the next X hours, we are going to switch off lights and sirens because, quite honestly, it's more dangerous than having them on. It puts our crews at risk, et cetera. And Matt reported a couple of the news folk went, well, just why don't you keep them off all the time then? Yeah, um, so absolutely. And, you know, uh, I, I think he expects me to use his name a lot, too. So I will tell you that uh, just uh, two or three days ago, I was with Matt and uh, some others that do a lot of this work in the Detroit area. 
uh, with the MedStar Ambulance in Detroit there. And, or as Matt they, calls it, MedStar North. MedStar so North, know. yes, yes. <laughs> and they did a wonderful conference where they brought together leaders of EMS agencies, but they also invited elected officials. And they even had some uh, state uh, representatives uh, uh, represented there, as well as uh, local community uh, elected officials. And I think it's a great example of going you know, through this process. And one of the things that uh, we brought up there was during the NEMSCO project, uh, people did talk about how do you educate uh, the public. You know, if you look at Mecklenburg uh, EMS in Charlotte, North Carolina, their website right now, since they changed their prioritization, their website actually has education to the public about why they have changed it and how they've changed it and how it's helping them get to the critical patients faster, but others may be waiting a bit. And, you know, that's on there. So you can use your website. You can talk to your elected officials. Um, in the NEMSQA project, one of the things that came up from some uh, folks that were educating their stakeholders was that there was a group in one of the larger urban areas. Uh, a group was representing the, the blind. And I had never thought of it from this perspective. But consider that if you are a blind person in a city and you're trying to navigate crossing the street and you hear sirens coming, it is very off-putting for them because they know how to cross the street when traffic is flowing normally. When there are sirens bouncing off of buildings and they're out in the middle of the street, they don't know which direction that ambulance is coming from. They don't know. All they know is they're in panic mode because they hear an emergency vehicle coming and they're trying to get across the street. And so, you know, we often don't think about what we cause to, you know, the anxiety of our driving public, the the wake effect crashes that happen by cars crashing into each other, getting out of the way of the ambulance and, you know, pedestrians and particularly disabled pedestrians that um, are really unnerved by us using lights and siren. Many cases, I can safely say in most cases, when it doesn't make any difference in our patient's outcome. That's a fascinating uh, point of view, Doug. I hadn't considered that, and that's that, that's uh, a point well made. Also, you just triggered something there that, uh, you know, certainly back in my old uh, operational leadership days, one of the things we did was to invite the, the media in to slap GoPros all over an ambulance just to respond for the day, just to show how regular road users and motorists react when an ambulance does come along on lights and sirens, and, of course, just to educate people what to do you know, and of course, we're not saying turn it all off. We're saying that there is a point where there, where these are necessary. But of course, we need to have the, the road user understand what to do, because of course, we know they'll always pull over in the narrowest part of the road and not allow you, you know, room to get past. So there's a bit of education needed for the points where we do have to use red lights. And you know, we, we love to blame when we're a driver of an emergency vehicle, we love to blame the other motorists for not knowing what to do. But the reality of it is they can't hear and see us as well as we think. We, we hear ourselves because the siren's right on top of our head, but you know they can't hear or see us as well as we think. Um, they're often put into bad options. They don't know how to which lane to clear and where to go and that sort of thing. And if we are overusing it, you know if you're using it a hundred percent of the time, but you can cut that to what, is uh, potentially of life-saving benefit to a patient, which means cutting it down to about 10%, uh, you know, then your motoring public 
is less likely to have to deal with it. They are going to ignore it less. They'll pay more attention when it happens. It's not going to be something they hear, you know, a couple times every hour around them in a big city. And uh, there are just many, many benefits to, to reducing it, in addition to the obvious that we would have less crashes of ambulances. Hey, I'm McCara Trusty. I am not only an NAEMT member, I'm also a, a member of the Lighthouse Leadership Committee. NAEMT, with support from FirstNet, built with AT&T, has developed a course to assist EMS agencies in building and supporting the mental health resilience of their personnel. The Mental Health Resilience Officer, or MHRO, course prepares EMS personnel to serve as their agency's mental health resilience officer. In this role, the MHRO will engage with peers to develop an understanding of mental health issues and resilience, identify peers who are experiencing mental health stressors and crises, navigate peers in need to the right services for help, and support the development of a culture of mental health resilience and emotional wellness within the agency. Available online and in a classroom format, and when your agency signs up for NAEMT membership, they will receive free access to this critically important course. For more details, contact membership at naemt.org or follow the links in the show notes. NAMT Radio is available wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, to name but a few, we're on Spotify, Amazon Music, Samsung Podcasts, and even iHeartRadio and others. If you're enjoying this show, please take a moment on whatever platform you're listening to us on to rate, review, give us four stars, a thumbs up. That way we go up the searchability scale. Um, if you have any comments or you want to uh, reach out to any of the guests we've had on NAMT Radio, drop us a line at naemtradio at naemt.org. We have an email address and you can get in touch and reach out. I'm talking to uh, our medical director, Dr. Doug Coopers. We're talking about red lights and sirens and uh, for those listening, this is the Rob Red Lights and Sirens story. If you want to quote this and use this uh, in your own agency, do that. So when we have to make the toughest decision in the EMS, and of course the toughest decision in the EMS is where are we going to go and have lunch, right? That is a really tough decision. Of course, and, and by the way, I'm going to open, Doug, I'm going to open a restaurant called You Choose because when they say, "What? Well, where are we going to? You Choose. So we're, there we are pulling out into the main road, an ambulance comes past us, red lights and sirens. And of course, I worked in a city, therefore you come to the first block and the ambulance slows down, we catch up. They clear the intersection, they carry on, light goes green, we carry on, we get to the next intersection, guess what? We catch up again. We arrive at the same location, which happens to be the restaurant, where the call is, at the same time. In other words, there's no advantage in doing what they're doing when the call is such low acuity and actually there's more risk to the road to the road user and the pedestrian the benefit and so done that a number of times and uh, that was certainly something that i'd experienced as a, as a as a chief just thinking why are we doing this because it's no there's no material benefit whatsoever compared to the severity of the patient those are those are interesting observations that we should start making more. We should start putting that together because I think what you described is exactly why uh, many of the studies, and there have now been uh, over a dozen, probably about 16 studies that looked at time, both for response and for um, transport, 
that have had relatively small differences in time using lights and siren, you know, the lowest of which is 42 seconds. And, and those are averages. When you actually look at those studies, they had some where they got there faster without the lights and siren than with, uh, you know, and they reported their average and they range anywhere from 42 seconds saved up to about three minutes uh, is what you see. So on average, I would say that you put all those studies together, you're saving about two to three minutes, whether you're, even in very dense urban areas, that's uh, somewhat the case. Um, you know, so I think you're you're observing that. The other thing that I observe myself is whenever I see a, a vehicle coming with lights and siren ahead of me or in my rearview mirror, I will crack the window. I'll turn down the radio a little bit. And if you're traveling at highway speed, pay attention to when you actually hear the siren. I mean, many times that vehicle is is uh, not very uh, far away from you before you first hear the siren. And, and the studies show that that can be, you know, somewhere around 30 feet or 50 feet. Uh, it gives you an example of, you know, we, we think everybody hears us loud and clear because we're in the vehicle with, with the noise with us. But, but it's been pretty well shown that they don't hear it. Uh, and that's probably part of why it causes people to panic and, and causes uh, crashes and wake, wake effect crashes and, other things. If you're listening, we're going to put all of the uh, documents, studies into the show notes, all the research, and we'll make sure that you have access to those. Uh, and so that you can also use, again, this information, this data to make your case, state your case, and of course, uh, do the right thing within your system. We mentioned uh, Zavansky, and I'm going to use another Zavanskyism because five minutes has passed and we haven't dropped his name yet. But, uh, you know, one of the things that Matt talked about is, you know, the, 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 the naysayers that may end up at City Hall that will tell you that bodies are going to be stacked up like cordwood uh, if we don't uh, speed up and get faster and arrive on scene quickly and first. And so... You know, you're the medical director. You're the guy that uh, has the final say in all of this. What do you say to people like that? Sure. So first of all, this is, you know, this is all about changing culture, right? Uh, that, that, that's really what this is all about. It, it, the, the science is absolutely clear for decades now that we are inappropriately using lights and siren and we're causing a significant number of crashes that don't need to occur. Uh, so there are going to be some naysayers, but first we have to make sure we look at it as a culture change and make those efforts. Um, Plum EMS in Western Pennsylvania did an absolutely incredible job in the uh, NEMSQA project, and their lights and siren use went from 55% of their responses with lights and sirens, so they were already limiting it a bit, down to 10% overnight from one month to the next because they had a, a, an incredible leader and incredible followers, and they talked about it, they got a, a culture around it, and now you know, they have just changed their culture among their entire group. Uh, so if you can change your culture, that is great. Um, for those that have difficulty with that, first of all, I would say, in a lot of EMS, we have been really quick to jettison and get rid of things that we didn't particularly like or want to do. So when we said there's evidence that we're overusing backboards, the backboards were in the dumpsters the next day. Uh, if, those of you that have been in EMS long enough know that you know uh, everything was about mass trousers a few decades ago. And when it was shown that those aren't of any benefit, they were out in the dumpster too. Uh, how about like demand valves? Uh, you know, I'm taking some of you back. If you, you have to be in EMS for, 
you know, 30, 40 years to, to know about mass trousers and, and demand valves. But those were, you know, part of everyday EMT training and embraced by every EMT. And we got rid of all of those. But I just got to throw one in because you yep, got me going now. I'm sitting there grinning because I'm no, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm a, a soldier of 30 years ago, and of course the the lesson was don't use that tourniquet, guys, because someone could lose a limb. Right. The, the, so yeah, the the tourniquet goes the other direction, right? We taught everybody don't exactly. ever use that, and now you know we know that you know your limbs aren't dying left and right because we're putting tourniquets on people and we're saving lives, and now we're starting to use them. And there's a whole bunch of, you know, the esophageal obturator airways and all sorts of, uh, you know, jaw screws and and crazy things that we used to use. We got rid of them immediately once we found that they were of no uh, scientific value. But we have known now for decades that lights and sirens are not really of scientific value, but there's a hesitance to throw them out. And I think it is because they're viewed as fun and they're viewed as adrenaline and the excitement of EMS. Uh, I will tell you that, you know, agencies that have made the ch- cultural change, their uh, clinicians actually in, uh, appreciate going non-lights and siren to things. When they get to the scene, they are not all amped up. Their adrenaline isn't flowing. They don't jump out of the vehicle and rush right in. And then they have to take a history from the 80-year-old lady who's, you know, and and they're all ramped up and... Um, you know, just uh, their thought process is is all over the place. Whereas if, if they get there without lights and siren and it's a, you know, a more um, scaled down response, you're more able to have your cognitive processes not uh, interrupted by adrenaline. But, but you know, really, I think the, the naysayers um, have to have to go the way of changing the culture. If you change the culture in the organization, then the naysayers become outliers. And, um you know, and, and they either will realize that they're, you know, dinosaurs, so to speak, in the way they're thinking of this and they adapt or, uh, or they move on or they get uh, moved on. But, but it all starts with changing the culture. You know, Atul Gawande has a quote that uh, in his book, Being Mortal, that I just love. He talks about culture and how hard it is to change a culture. And he makes the statement, culture eats innovation in the crib. You know, you can't make innovative changes if your culture is not ready and set up to be open to that because uh, because those innovative changes will not uh, be able to grow into infancy. Let's kind of conclude this discussion by talking about lights and sirens as a clinical intervention, because if it's an emergency, it's an emergency. And if it's not, which is most cases, it's not. But there's a clinical indicator here, right? Uh, absolutely. And, you know, I don't want anybody to think that what we are talking about, because sometimes those that get defensive about this think we're talking about using no lights and siren at all, which, to be honest, if the FDA uh, had to take a new drug and look at the, the uh, risks and benefits of it and, and approve it, uh, and if the FDA was looking at lights and siren lit with the same kind of process they use with new drugs, lights and siren would never be approved for use right now because uh, I think there's lots of good information that it causes uh, more harm than it helps. But keep in mind that we're not suggesting that we throw the baby out with the bathwater. We're not suggesting that when you have a uh, cardiac arrest or potential cardiac arrest that there's not a lights and siren response to that to attempt to save the minutes to get there two minutes sooner. But for all the other cases where uh, the 90% of cases where it is not going to change the outcome, and when you're talking about transport, 
almost 100% of the cases, it is not going to change the outcome. In those situations, we should be looking at lights and siren use like we do everything else in medicine. It is an intervention that we do. We start IVs, we give certain medications, we use lights and siren. All of those has a risk and all of them has a benefit. You know, we don't give epinephrine as good a drug as it is to every single patient we encounter, just hoping that, you know, um, everybody uh, doesn't need it, but the ones that do will, will get better. We, we figure out and triage who needs it and who doesn't. We should be doing that with lights and siren too. It should be like a prescription or an intervention where we say, what are the risks? What are the benefits? And this particular patient may benefit by it, but these other nine will not. So that is the prescription, ladies and gentlemen, from Dr. Coopers. So thank you for, uh, for joining me in this particular episode to talk about red lights and sirens. The standard Rob ending question is there is any, is there anything I've forgotten to ask or anything that you want to tell us? Rob, obviously, uh, based on our conversation, this is a very complicated uh, thing. But the one thing that we have not touched upon, which is almost amazing that we have not, is uh, we did not mention the importance of dispatch categorization, uh, dispatch uh, call prioritization, and using your dispatchers to have a robust EMD program that helps to prioritize callers into how a uh, urgent their call is and not, which is in turn helps us determine you know, which calls should uh, or may benefit by lights and siren. And so I think that you know the dispatch center connections here, most EMS agencies aren't in the position where uh, they are overseeing both the EMD and the, uh, the EMS agency together, although some do. But in most situations, you're going to have to reach out and connect the medical director at the local dispatch center, the local dispatch center's managers, uh, their EMD protocols, and all of that has to be incorporated into this because it's critical to, uh, to helping make those selections of who should get a lights and siren response. You're absolutely right. We, we were remiss in not mentioning dispatch centres. And certainly in my experience, uh, the advent or the certainly in my experience, the MDRC, the Medical Dispatch Review Committee, plays an absolutely critical part in identifying what we're responding to, how quickly we're, we're responding to it. And obviously, within you know your Medical Dispatch Review Committee, if you have one, if you don't have one, I would suggest you form one, even if you're not the primary PSAP, Public Safety Access Point, in order to analyze all of the call data coming in, all the responses that you're doing, and involve your medical director. I'm talking to our medical director here, but uh, if you don't have your medical director involved in this, please, for goodness sake, do so. Because, of course, that's the almost the authority to say this is the evidence, this is based on what's coming in, this is the action we need to take. And so medical dispatch review is absolutely critical and a part and parcel of this process. Hopefully I got that right, Doug. That sounds perfect there, Rob. So, Dr. Doug Coopers, thank you so much again for joining us. If you have any comments, as I said before, if you want to leave a comment or reach out to uh, to our esteemed medical director, you can via the email naamtradio at naamt.org. So, for the moment, and I know you'll be back on the show, uh, thank you for the moment. Thank you very much, Rob. So, that was episode five of NAMT Radio. 
Looking forward to uh, the next episode where we're going to be joined by our Associate Medical Director, Dr. Jeff Jarvis. And also, EMS on the Hill is coming up and I'm going to be up there with a roving microphone and uh, we're going to catch some reactions from people up on the Hill and obviously talk about the benefit of that too. So stay tuned to NEMT Radio. That's all for now. I've been Rob Lawrence. And until next time, bye for now. Bye for now.